Would you turn with me to Psalm 121? And then we're going to a passage in Revelation chapter 3. Psalm 121. We're happy to have Caroline, our daughter, here today. Today's her birthday. We're glad to have her. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Let me read that third verse again. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee. He that keepeth thee shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy keeper. How many are glad that God is our keeper? The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Three. I want to speak this morning about the Lord being our keeper. The Lord being our keeper. Revelation chapter 3. Remember, if you say amen every now and then, I'll know you're getting it. And we'll get out earlier. Amen. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3. Verse 10 says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. This is Jesus talking. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of tribulation. I'm sorry, excuse me. From the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I'm sure all of you are familiar with Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. They contain the letters that Jesus gave to John and told him to send them to the seven churches of Asia. Of the seven churches of Asia, only two of them received no rebuke whatsoever. 
only two of the seven received no rebuke from the Lord. Can anybody tell me who they were? Number one was Smyrna, and number two was Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but the church at Philadelphia. Jesus always looks for ways to commend his people. Jesus always looks for ways and things to compliment on the part of his churches. Nothing delights him more, nothing delights him more than when he can commend the imperfect work of his own or of his own people. I grew up with a different notion than that. But it doesn't matter what we were taught. It's what the Word says. And it's very clear that nothing delights the Lord more than when He can commend even the imperfect work of His own people. He does not wait. He does not wait for performance in our lives to reach the level of sinlessness or perfection before he approves them. Some of us need to ask God to help us by his spirit to get some old ideas that are completely unscriptural out of our minds so that we can get scriptural ones in their place. I was taught that the Lord has got a billy club in one hand and a magnifying glass in the other and he's looking for something to club us about. When there's far from the truth, far from the truth, he doesn't wait until his people are able to achieve perfection and sinlessness before he approves of them. When a child is trying to please its father or mother, the parent would certainly never say, your gift isn't really worth very much. Maybe they colored something and brought it to us. We would never say to them, your gift isn't worth very much. I probably could find a nicer one in a shop somewhere or a mall. Do we think that Christ's love and delight in the service of his children would be any less. Parents are always, when their children are learning to walk, they don't push them down when they fall or throw them on the bed, but they say to them, come on, you can do it. Come on, come on, take a step. Come on, you can do it. And that's the way our Lord is. That's the way he is. We need to remind ourselves that that's the way the Lord is. He wants to help us. And he commended these two churches that needed no rebuke. The good souls in Philadelphia did not live angelic lives. They weren't all perfect. 
lives of unbroken holiness. That's not why Jesus commended them. That's not why he had only praise for the church at Philadelphia. We should learn from this passage that we have read together that in all our poor and stained service, he recognizes the motive and the main drift of what we are seeking to do for him. And he accepts those. I'm glad. I'm glad for that. Sometimes when you preach, you know, you feel like maybe you knocked a home run. But there are some times where that didn't happen. Right, Pastor? Yes, there are some times when that doesn't happen. But even when we lay a golden egg or something, the Lord is looking down upon us and smiling his smile of approval as he did with the church at Laodicea, I meant at Philadelphia, not Laodicea. We talked about Laodicea last Sunday. He said, thou hast kept the word of my patience. We're going to talk about that. Thou hast kept the word of my patience, and I will reciprocate by keeping you from the hour of temptation and in the hour of temptation. Let me read that verse to you again. Thou hast kept the word of my patience, and I will reciprocate by keeping you from and in the hour of temptation. Let's look first at the thing kept. A couple of years, a couple of verses, I'm sorry, my glasses are fogged up or something. A couple of verses before our text, the Lord had said to the same church, evidently speaking about the same thing, he said to them, thou hast a little strength and has kept my word. Thou hast a little strength and has kept my word. This, the word of my patience, the word of my patience seems to be best understood in the same way as that other which precedes it. He is not referring to individual commandments to patience, but to the entire gospel message the word of Jesus Christ communicated to men. What does the New Testament mean when it uses the word patience? What does the word patience mean in the New Testament? Well, it's not merely endurance, although that is included, but endurance as will secure persistence in work in spite of sufferings and opposition which may come our way. That's what God is talking about. That's what Jesus was talking to John about in Revelation chapter 3. The world's patience simply goes like this. If we put it in just a few words, the world's words for patience simply goes like this. Bring it on. I can handle it. I can take it. But patience in the New Testament has in it the concept of perseverance as well as of endurance. It means 
more than just bowing to pain or bowing to sorrow. It means that nothing, nothing in sorrow, nothing in trial, nothing in temptation, nothing in antagonism. I'm going to start over. It means more than just bowing to pain or sorrow, but that nothing in sorrow and nothing in trial and nothing in temptation and nothing in antagonism has any power at all to divert us from doing what we know to be right. That's how God talks about patience. I got it right the second time, got it wrong the first, so I'm going to say it one more time. It means more than just bowing to pain or sorrow, but that nothing in sorrow, nothing in trial, nothing in temptation, nothing in antagonism has any power to divert us from doing what we know to be right. The patient man of the New Testament is the man who will stretch his hand through the smoke of hell to take hold of duty. The patient man of the New Testament is the man who will stretch his hand through the smoke of hell to take hold of the duty that God has given to him. Martin Luther was in a place one day where it was not friendly territory. He was determined that the people of God should have the word of God and that some man behind a sacred desk would not be the only person to have it. And he said about that place, he said there were as many devils in that place as there were roof tiles on the housetops, but I will go in. I will go in. He said the devils around here are more plentiful than uh, all of the roof tiles on all of the housetops, but I have been charged by God to go in and I will go in. That speech expressed the true idea of Christian patience. He knew what God had for him to do and nothing was going to keep him from doing that. I want to just stop and ask you the question, do you know what God has for you? Do you know what God wants from your life? The whole story of Jesus' life on earth may well be seen from this point of view as the record of his unfaltering continuance in obedience to the Father's will. Jesus did not go around just doing the first thing that popped into his head. Jesus did not go around just uh, running off at the mouth, but he knew what the Father was asking of him on that particular day in that particular time. And the scripture says, he set his face like a flint, like an arrow to do the will of God. He didn't just say any, many, many, mo next to the pool of Bethesda. But the Father had shown him 
what he was to do. And nothing could keep Jesus from doing the will of the Father. Before him was the thing to be done. And between him and that thing that God wanted him to do, there was amassed all kinds of battalions of antagonism and evil as was never mustered in one place. But Jesus said, I will do the will of my Father. I will do the will of my Father. People came to Jesus, tried to get him to do things that the Father had not talked to him about, and he refused to do it. He went the other way. He didn't insult people, but he went the other way because he knew, and he put it into these words. He said, I can only do those things that are pleasing in my Father's sight. He said, by myself, he said, by myself, I can do nothing. By myself, I can do nothing. Now, was Jesus just trying to snow people? Or did he really believe that? He knew that the power of God that would be in his life was because he took time to be alone with his father. And his father showed him things that he wanted him to do. And Jesus said, by myself, I can't do anything. I can do nothing. <clears throat> Through all of it, he went persistently with his face set like a flint set to do the work for which he came into the world. His persistence, in spite of all the obstacles, in spite of all the opposition, was the persistence of meekness and the heroicness of gentleness. All that opposition could do to hinder the realization of the Father's will all of that he quietly endured. This is the theme of the gospel story. And we are to lay it upon our hearts. Unwelcome tasks, hard tasks are made easy and even delightful if we are determined to do what God has shown us to do. I want us to notice next that the, notice the keepers, the keepers of this word. The metaphor, the comparison here, represents to us the action of one who in possession of something very valuable, puts it into a safe place, puts it in a place where he can take care of it. He carries it everywhere next to his heart and he watches over it tenderly and jealously. There are two ways by which Christians are to do that and I want to just quickly go over them with you. 
Number one is by inwardly cherishing, inwardly cherishing the Word of God. There are two ways by which Christians are to do this thing that we're talking about. Number one is by inwardly cherishing the Word of God. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that the plain practical duty of reading the Bible is getting to be a much neglected duty among professing Christians. I am afraid that the plain practical duty of reading the Bible and studying the Bible is getting to be a much neglected duty among professing Christians. Pray tell, how am I to keep the words of Christ's patience in my heart and in my mind if I do not read his word, if I do not love his word, if I do not study his word. I'm afraid that most Christian congregations nowadays do their study of the scriptures by proxy. I'm afraid that most Christian congregations nowadays do their study of the scriptures by proxy expecting their ministers to read the Bible for them and to tell them what it says. I remember a year or so ago having a talk with a man who was a minister and a fine minister of the gospel. But he said something that disturbed me. He said, you know, I don't know that we have to be all that concerned with having the right message, having something especially from God. He said, even if we don't, most people don't know what the Bible says. Most people are, are spiritually illiterate. I was very disappointed to hear him say that. I'm afraid that newspapers and magazines and little religious books have taken the place that our fathers used to have filled with honest reading of the Word of God. Yeah. Nothing takes the place of God's Word. Nothing takes the place. Nothing can take the place of God's Word in our lives. You know, I, I, I don't have a problem with um, some of the little publications, except if they lead us no longer to depend on God's Spirit to help us see what He's saying to us. If they don't do that, then I have no problem with them. If they do that, if we are being fed by someone and that person we don't know, we don't know what their, their theology is, then there is a problem. I believe that is a very large part of the reason why so many professing Christians do not come up to the standard of God's Word. And instead of running with patience the race set before them, they walk in an extraordinarily leisurely kind of a way. They start and stop with long intervals between them. 
They sit on the road and are not even a mile further down the road than they were at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year. My brothers and sisters, there is no reason for that to be true. There is no reason for that to be true. Listen, there never was, if you're writing anything down, you'll want to write this down, there never was and there never will be vigorous Christian life unless there be an honest, habitual study of God's Word. I want you to let that sink in because it is very important. There never was and there never will be vigorous, living relationship, vigorous Christian life, unless there is in that life an honest, habitual study of God's Word. I didn't expect anybody to run around the church, but it is so. There is no shortcut by which Christians can reach the end of the race if our eyes are to be enlightened and our hearts are to be made to rejoice, we must put the salve that Jesus talked to John about in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. There must be applying the salve. We don't have time to elaborate on that this morning, but maybe we'll Come back to that at another time. The word is kept not only by inward treasuring of the word, but secondly, by continual obedience to the word of God. Two things. Treasuring the word of God. Treasuring the word of God. Number one, and number two is by continual obedience to it. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was reading, studying, as I do virtually every day, and I came across what I just said to you. And the Holy Spirit said to my heart, now what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? There was something that I did not want to be involved in. I uh, didn't see any value in it. It just wasn't for me. But he said to me, said to my heart, are you going to obey? He was saying to me, I want you to do this. You may not see the value in it. You probably know what I'm talking about. You may not see the value in it. It may be something that you'd just rather not do. I picked the phone up and I called someone who was related to that situation and I said, I will be there tonight. Tonight. 
God's people have almost always been willing to offer sacrifice. But God is not looking for sacrifice. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for obedience. Back in the Old Testament, the man said, Oh, I've, I've made the sacrifice. And the prophet said, That's not what God said do. That's not what he said do. And he followed it up by saying, does God have as great delight in sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You see, that thing that I was talking about just a couple of minutes ago is not something that was a one-time thing. If it were, you know, I would be fine with that. But I have determined that I'm going to do what God would have me to do. Even if I don't see the value in it, even if I think that it's a waste of time, I'm going to do what he says to do. That is one of the most important things. That's one of the most important things for a Christian. The word is kept. Jesus said, those who keep my word, I will keep them in the hour of temptation and from the hour of temptation. My brothers and sisters, our world has gone absolutely mad. Some of the news things that I've heard recently, grown men in love with little children our world has gone stark, raving mad. And who knows where it's going to end? Well, the enemy is not going to tempt us with that, Pastor. But he knows exactly, exactly. where he can come exactly. and try to mislead us. He studies us. He studies you. He studies me. And he sees where there is an opportunity or there could be an opportunity for him to insert himself into our lives and into our space. We need the keeper who is the Lord. The scripture says the Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy keeper. Uh, brother, we can't keep ourselves. We can't keep ourselves. But if we will get that word down inside of us, and if we will be obedient. See, I knew what the Lord was asking me to do, or showing me to do, and I could have just said, well, you know, I'll, I'll try something else. Some, this, is, this is a bigger thing. That's what he said. If we will keep his word, if we will keep his word, he has promised to keep us in the time of trial. Unless we can say with the psalmist, thy word have I hidden in my heart 
that I might not sin against thee. We will not be in a position to have the word of the Lord sounding out of us to other people. Some folks, you know, all they want to do is talk to other Christians about what they ought to do. Unless we can say with the psalmist, thy word have I hid in my heart that I will, might not sin against thee, the word of the Lord going out of us will not sound like the blast of a trumpet from our lives. We need this persistence in daily life if we're not going to fail utterly. We need this persistence. The scripture tells us, in your patience, ye shall possess your souls or win your souls. Only the person who presses ahead in spite of all that outside things that come our way to hinder us We will not be in possession of our souls. I remember hearing a man describe a minister. I didn't really know the man, but I knew who he was. And this man said about this minister, he said, he is a man in charge of himself. He is a man in charge of himself. God wants us to be in charge. He wants the Holy Spirit to be moving upon us and guiding us, and he wants us to be in charge. He doesn't want us to have a bunch of loose ends everywhere. Amen. Amen. By persistence in the paths of Christian service, regardless of what outside or within may arise to hinder us, do we become the masters of ourselves. Many a person has to walk through the fire to get to the place where God has for him to be. But if he or she does not flinch, he will reach the place that God has with a quiet heart. The scripture says, run with patience the race that is set before you. We must keep at what we know to be the duty that God has for us in spite of the cowardice of our own hearts. Jesus said, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from and in the hour of temptation. That's reciprocity. He says, if you will keep the word of my patience, I will keep you from and in the hour of temptation. He will do for us as we have done with his word. He is still doing today at the Father's right hand. He is still doing what he did while he was here on the earth. In the great high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I have kept them, Father, I have kept them in thy name, which thou hast given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has perished except the son of perdition. And even today, speaking from heaven, he continues to guard his own. He bids us to trust that when 
he was here with his followers. He sheltered them as a mother shelters her children as a mother bird looks out for her little ones. Jesus is looking out for us. If we will keep the word of his patience, cherishing the story of his life in our hearts and seeking to mold our lives after him, he will keep us no matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens in this world, he will keep us and protect us. He has not promised always to keep us from temptation so that we don't have to face it. But from means that he will save us out of it. He will save us out of it. He's not going to keep us from being ever tempted or ever having difficulty in our lives. That's a nice doctrine that went through the church about 30, 40 years ago, but it, does, it just doesn't work. But he said, I will keep you in the hour of temptation. I will keep you from temptation. Outside circumstances will not be emptied of power to tempt, but our susceptibility will be deadened as we keep the word of his patience. It is wonderful when we wrestle with temptation and overcome. But how much better is it how much greater is it when we are walking in the strength of the Lord so that it is not able to hold us in its grasp? It is great to be the victor over passions and desires and to put it under our feet, but it is far better to be so near the master that our passions and our desires have fallen before him and he has made us free indeed. We can only attain to this if we draw near to him in daily communion. It must be so. In this way, we will be lifted above temptation. Jesus said, you do what I tell you and I will keep you in the hour of temptation. We don't have to fear. We don't have to walk around in fear. Am I going to make it? Is God's grace great enough so that I can make it? We don't have to do that. We can open his Bible and read where he said, just do what I tell you to do, and I will take care of everything. Would you stand with me, and let's bow our hearts for prayer.